so much. Uh, what a blessing. What a blessing it is to have you be a part of our family. And what you said about commitment really stood out to me. That it's not so much a feeling as it is a decision and an action. A lot of times we're driven by our emotions. But in life, when we take that step, when we take that action, our feelings often follow. And so appreciate that encouragement. And I um, want to encourage all of you, if you haven't already, that you would commit, that you too would make that decision to be a part of either this local body or some other local body that proclaims the name of Christ. Well, last week, Pastor Ray exhorted us from God's word from the book of Exodus, uh, the need for us as God's people to give to the Lord our talents and our treasures. Um, and that was actually the first installment of a two-part series that we are doing on Beyond the Building, part two. Now that we are here, we are continuing to uh, seek to raise funds for the upkeep of the building, as well as all the improvements that are needing to be made and beyond the building. We want to impact this community as well as the nations for Christ. And so... Um, before we go to God's word, if we can uh, go over the values, if I can have that on the screen. I'm going to read the value, and we are going to read the statement together. Value number one, a gospel-centered life. The gospel is a basis of our intimacy with God and our power for true transformation. A gospel-revealing community by our love that transcends all natural bonds. All people will know that we are Christ's disciples unapologetic proclamation of scripture we stand on the solid rock of scripture without compromise for all other ground and sinking sand church as family we as followers of jesus pursue his vision of family through our deep and mutual commitment interdependence and affection and a missional community we join god's mission to make disciples by demonstrating tangibly the power of the gospel in our city and in the world. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the book of Luke. The gospel according to Luke, chapter 19. And if you are able, if you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. Luke 19, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The verse came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. 
Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And in my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God, open the eyes of our hearts. Because if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. We are totally and utterly dependent on you. Holy Spirit, we need you desperately right now. This is your word. This is your holy word. God, this is your word for your people today. So, Spirit, will you take your word and would you plant it deep in every heart and every mind? God, would you bring transformation? Bring transformation, bring change in a way that, that only you as God can bring. And so, God, I commit every person, every heart, every mind, every person that is listening right now, God, I commit them into your hands, asking for your blessing and asking for your protection. For we know that there's, a, there's an enemy who does not want your word planted. And so God, we, in Jesus' name and power, rebuke and bind and silence every voice that is not of you. And we command you, every evil spirit, in the name and the power and the authority of Jesus, leave. Leave now. And come, Jesus, take your rightful place in our midst. Reign over us today. Reign over the heart of your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are told that our story takes place near Jerusalem. And this is significant because we are now in the final week of Jesus' life. His earthly ministry is coming to a close. The end is near. The people, however, are at this point are bubbling over with excitement. Why? Because as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, 
they're anticipating that the hope of Israel will finally be fulfilled. That is, Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom. He's going to march into Jerusalem and start an uprising, a revolution, overthrow the Romans, and take his rightful place as a king of Israel. So the anticipation, the expectancy at this point is at an all-time high because Jesus is going to finally liberate his people from their oppressors. Now, this is also around the time of Passover when the Jews remembered God's deliverance of his people from Pharaoh. So they're, they're connecting all the dots and they're, they're going, it's going to happen. It's finally going to happen and they're amped. But that's when Jesus tells them this parable. Not just to temper their expectations, but to redirect it entirely. That what awaited him in Jerusalem was not a crown, but a cross. And that the kingdom of God would come not in the way they expected. And so he tells them a story about a nobleman who goes off to a far country to receive a kingdom after which he returns. Now, what's interesting about the story is that it's grounded in something that had actually taken place not long ago in the nation's history. You guys remember Herod the Great? He's the one who ruled Palestine when Jesus was born, right? The one who ordered that all male infants under the age of two be killed in its efforts to kill the newborn Christ. Well, when he died or before he died, he wanted his son Archelaus to take over, to reign, to rule the territory. But he couldn't just transfer authority over to his son. Archelaus had to be given kingship by a higher king, Caesar. So Archelaus and his entourage make a trip to Rome to ask for the right to rule Palestine. But what he didn't realize was that a delegation of Jews also went to Rome at the same time to ask Caesar to not make him king. Why? Because Archelaus was a wicked man, that's why. He was a bloodthirsty savage. In fact, not long before making that trip to Rome, he massacred 3,000 Jews and dumped all their bodies in the temple, totally desecrating it. And so the Jews hated him, and they said to Caesar, we don't want this man to be king over us. So Caesar ends up denying Archelaus kingship and tells him to go back to the people and win the favor of the people and prove his worthiness. Then he'll be given the kingdom, which never happens because he never does that. But all of this was fresh in people's minds, and Jesus picks up on that historical account to teach them about himself. The only difference is the nobleman in our story wasn't like Archelaus at all. No, he's good. He was noble in the truest sense of the word, and he, of course, represents Jesus, who will go away to the Father to receive a kingdom and will one day return to establish it in full. But before the nobleman leaves, he calls 10 of his servants to himself, and he gives each of them a mina. Now, a mina was equivalent to about three months' wages for the average everyday laborer, okay? But the master gives each of his servants a mina with the instruction, engage in business till I come back. That is, while I'm away, put it to use. Invest it. 
leverage it so as to gain a profit. And that was their task to use what they had been given for the purpose and the profit of the master. This is where we see the first kingdom principle in this parable. That the master is the owner and the servant is simply the steward. Don't miss this. Notice that the master entrusts his minus to his servants. He doesn't call the servants to himself and says, bring me one of your minas. No, he gives them his mina to put to use while he's away. The first thing Jesus is wanting us to get in this parable is that the master is the owner and the servant is simply the steward of his stuff. This is the first thing we need to establish because, listen, we will never get the money deal right if we don't settle the ownership issue. The truth that all that I have, all that I possess, does not ultimately belong to me, but to God. It's all his. Speaking of ownership issues, you ever been around a two-year-old? A two-year-old's favorite word is what? Mine. Mine. That's mine, mine, mine. I remember when my kids were little, man, every other word out of their mouth was mine. It's like them seagulls and Finding Nemo. Remember those guys? Mine, 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 mine. That's my kids. I had four of them going, mine, 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 my ball, my blankie, my book, my mommy, mine. Now, in reality, none of it's theirs, right? A two-year-old didn't acquire any of that stuff. It was all given to them. And as quickly as it was given, it can be taken away. But the stuff they think is theirs isn't really theirs at all. It's just an illusion, you see. A very strong one, but that's all it is. An illusion. Two-year-olds are funny like that. We grown-ups are funny like that, too. We live with the delusion, the mistaken belief that all that we have is ours, when in reality, none of it belongs to us. And this is what the Bible is constantly telling us. God says in Job 41, 11, everything under the sun belongs to me. Not some things, not most things. Everything belongs to me. Psalm 89, 11 says, the heavens are yours, the earth is also yours. The world and all that is in it. And Paul sums it all up in 1 Corinthians 10, 26 when he says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The Bible is unmistakably clear in stating that there is nothing under the sun. Listen, there is nothing in, in the universe, in heaven or on earth, that does not belong to God, including my money. All of it. Every dollar, every penny belongs to God. And the only reason I have it is because he has given it to me. Now, as soon as we hear that, there are some who will think, hold up, wait a minute. I work hard for my money. I busted my tail for what I have. What are you talking about? I spent years getting the education and the experience that I needed, and I get up early every morning, 
And I work hard all day, all week, all month, all year. What do you mean it's all been given to me? Now, I don't doubt for a second that you work hard. Not for a second. But let me ask you, where do you get the energy to work hard? Who gives you breath every morning when you wake up? Who gave you a mind with which to think and learn and grow? Who gave you the ability to process information and make decisions? Who gave you hands to work, a mouth to speak, ears to hear, and eyes to see? Let me remind you that the only reason you have breath in your lungs right now is because God has put it there. The only reason your heart is beating right now at this very moment is because God is fueling it with his rhythm and grace. And the moment he stops, so do you. He is the author of your life. He's the one who's sustaining it. And every good thing you have in your life comes from him. Every good thing in your life does not come from your hard work, your talents, or your expertise. Every good thing you have comes from God. Even if you hate God, every good thing you have comes from the very one you hate. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that it's the Father who makes the sun rise on the good and the evil and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And Paul said in Acts 17 that it's God who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The Bible tells us that it's sinful pride that causes us one to think that he is ultimately behind all that he has. No, it says everything good in our lives is evidence of God's grace toward us. Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18 says this. Listen to Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. Oh, hear this. God is speaking this over our hearts today, that all of our wealth, all of our money has been given to us by God. David understood this. And that's why as he watches the Israelites bring forth hundreds of tons of gemstones and precious metals for the building of the temple, he prays, who am I? And who are my people that we should be, be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what has come from your hand. He says, God, we're, we're only giving you what you have given to us. And the only reason we're able to be as generous as we are is because you have been so generous toward us. It's like this. It's like when my kids give me gifts for my birthday. You know where I'm going. Or Father's Day or Christmas. They give me a shirt or something with Dodgers because I love the Dodgers. But how are they getting me those gifts? Whose money are you using to give me those gifts? Mine. The money I give them. The only way they're able to get those gifts for me is because I've given them the money to buy them. And so it is with us. 
Everything good we have comes from God, and we are just giving him what he has given to us, what has come from his hand. Guys, something important we have to know about God is that he is self-sufficient. That's one of the most important attributes of God, that he is self-sufficient. And here's what that means. That means that God has no needs. God has no needs. He is the only being in the universe who is entirely self-contained. Nothing outside of him can give him anything or offer him anything. That's why the Bible says in James 1 that God can't be tempted. God cannot be tempted because there's... There's no carrot you can dangle in front of God. I mean, what could possibly tempt the one whose every need and desire is fully met within himself and already owns everything? Here's why I bring this up. If we're not careful, we can start thinking that God needs us to give to him. We can convince ourselves that God... The God upon we are, who, to whom we are dependent on, everything is somehow dependent on us. I've actually heard Christian appeals for giving based on this kind of thinking. Will you please give to God some of your money so that he can advance his kingdom? So that Jesus can build his church? I've also heard appeals like this. Hey, look at all that Jesus has done for you. The least you can do is give. You owe him. I've heard pastors make appeals like this. But let me encourage you today to never think like that. Here's why. Christian, you don't owe Jesus anything. You don't owe Jesus your money, your time, or anything else. Listen. The Christian life is not about Jesus giving his life for you than you trying to pay him back with your money or whatever else. That actually misses the whole point of Christianity, the whole point of the gospel. Because the moment you try to pay Jesus back for all that he has done for you, you are undercutting the very foundation of our faith, which is grace. And it's not grace if you could pay it back. Listen, Jesus does not call you to pay him back for the simple fact that you can't pay him back for all that he has done for you. We need to get this. Far too many in the church think that in light of what Jesus has done for us in the past, we need to give to him now. But the reality is that Jesus has not stopped giving to us. He didn't just give his life for you in the past. He is giving you life right now. Everything, every good thing you have in your life is because Jesus has given it to you. It's all grace. It's all grace. There's nothing good in us, hear me. There's nothing good in you and me apart from the grace of God in Christ. The only thing you and I bring to the table is our sin. That's the only thing we've got to offer him. Our sin, our rebellion, our disobedience, and yet he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. And yet that God, that holy God delights in us and cherishes us and calls us his own. And in mercy, he gives us none of what we deserve and and grace. He withholds everything that we do deserve. And when you get that, it changes everything. It changes everything. 
And we see a perfect example of this in the passage right above. Verse 11 says, as they heard these things, what things? What Jesus was saying to a man named Zacchaeus, who was a wealthy tax collector, a greedy man, who scammed his own people, stole from his own people to give to their oppressors and to line his pockets. But when he experiences the love of Jesus, the acceptance of Jesus, the grace of Jesus for a sinner like him, what happens? His life gets transformed. It gets flipped upside down. His entire value system gets remade. And he says to the Lord, I'm going I'm to give half of all that I have to the poor. And Jesus, whoever I scammed, I'm going to repay them four times what I've stolen from them. And the Lord told him to do none of those things. You see, money lost his grip on Zacchaeus. Why? Because he found treasure. He found true treasure. All that he had been looking to money to give him, he found in Jesus. And now it's like, I don't need this. See, that's what happens when we get life right. When we get life right, you don't give because you owe Jesus your money now. No, giving is no longer, no longer an obligation. It's now an opportunity. It's no longer a duty. It is now a delight. I don't give because I have to give. I give because I get to, because it's a sacred honor. It's a privilege to give to God what he has given me. To carry out his purposes in the world. So the first thing we see, the first thing we need to settle is the ownership issue. That the master is the owner and I'm simply the steward of his stuff. The steward for his purposes. The second thing we see in this parable, and the second thing we need to settle is the authority issue. The authority issue. That the servant is always under the authority of the master. Whether the master is present or absent, visible or invisible, the servant understands that he is always under his authority. And that's what kingdom living is all about, is it not? That whether the king, whether King Jesus is present or absent, visible or invisible, near or far away, we are always under his divine kingship. Now the problem for you and me is that you and I know almost next to nothing about the divine or, or about the concept of kingship. Except for what we see on TV with the royals in England. And that's because we have the system that we have here in America. But if you ever travel to Lexington, Massachusetts, the place where the first shot rang out that began the Revolutionary War, you would see monuments erected by the first generation of Americans that express utter disdain, hatred for the King of England. Why? Because they hated the very concept of a king who had authority over them. Especially one who was all the way across the pond in England. And so they devised a system, a brand new system here in the brand new land. Whereby we elect our king, so to speak. We elect our leaders. And if we don't like him, if we don't like what he does, then we can impeach him or replace him at the next election. And living in this kind of system, many in the church have transferred that same mindset over to the eternal king. So if we don't like what he does, 
if I don't like what you're doing in my life, if I don't like what he tells me to do, then consciously or unconsciously, we impeach that king and rebel against his rule. And that's what we see in verse 14. Jesus says, but the citizens hated him and sent the delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Again, this is a reference to Archelaus. But this king did nothing to incite this kind of hatred. He did nothing. He, hate, he was hated for no other reason than the people not wanting to live under his authority. They, were, they are subject to no one but themselves. It goes without saying that this represents all those who do not want to live under the kingship of Christ. But listen, it's not just people out there in the, in the world. It's also people in here. You find this in the church. And you see this in much more subtle ways. Here's what I mean. Most of us in this room would never say, I don't want Jesus reigning over me. We would never say that. But we reject his rule in other ways like this. Like separating the parts of our lives before him. What I mean is we have a tendency to divide our lives into compartments or segments. The two major being the spiritual and the secular. Or the religious and the non-religious. And there's a split. There's a divide between those parts of our lives and we see those parts as mostly unrelated. And the effect of the split is seen in the way we think about discipleship to Christ. So we think discipleship to Jesus deals with the spiritual or religious areas of my life. And so we go to church on Sundays. We have our devotions. We join a small group. We serve because that's what God would have me do. God cares about those things. Those things are important to him. But in the secular or non-religious areas of my life, which include things like my job, my work, our careers, our forms of entertainment, our finances, the way we spend our money. There is far less attention given or no attention given to how we might apply the kingship of Christ to those areas of life. And the result of the split is that we got a whole bunch of people who think they're following Christ because they go to church. All the while approaching the secular areas of life just like everyone else in the world. For instance, many never stop to consult with the king. How much of their budget should go towards going out and eating out and shopping? God's just not a part of that. Many never consult with the king. How much of their budget should go towards giving and advancing the cause of Christ in the world? Many never stop to consult with the king what they should or shouldn't be watching on Netflix. Or what job they should or should not take. Because what matters to God, see, what matters to God is that I go to church and have my devotions. And there are all these parts of our lives that remain virtually untouched by the reign of Christ. But what I want to say to you today under the authority of God's word is that there is no... There is no sacred secular split in the kingdom of God. To be a part of God's kingdom means that all of life 
Every aspect of my life is lived under the authority and the kingship of Christ. And a concept, a term that captures beautifully is Coram Deo. Anybody ever heard of Coram Deo? It's a Latin phrase that literally means before the face of God. Coram Deo, before the face of God. And what it's describing is the very essence of the Christian life, that all of life is to be lived in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. In other words, I live all of life, every aspect of my life is lived in constant awareness of his presence and seeking to experience communion with God in all those places and spaces. So it's not just performing if God's watching, so I better do it right. No, I, God, I want to do it with you. I want to experience you in this, and not just when I'm at church or having my devotions. I love how R.C. Sproul put it. That means if a person fulfills his or her vocation as a steelmaker, attorney, or homemaker, Coram Dale, then that person is acting every bit as religiously as a soul-winning evangelist who fulfills his vocation. It means that David was as religious when he obeyed God's call to be a shepherd as he was when he was anointed to be the king of Israel. It means that Jesus was every bit as religious when he worked in his father's carpenter shop as when he was in the garden of Gethsemane dropping tears of blood. That's Coram Deo. That's what it means to live Coram Deo. So when you drive home from this place, Coram Deo. I actually knew someone who put that word that he cut out, cut out Coram Deo, put it on his dashboard to remind himself every time I drive, every time I'm behind the wheel, I must drive with the awareness of God's presence and to experience him in this, to do it with God. Later on, when you watch TV, Coram Deo. Watch it before God and with God. When you're cooking a meal in that kitchen for your family or for yourself, Coram Deo. Chop up them vegetables with God. Do it before God. And when you budget your finances, when you budget your finances, Coram Deo. Budget your finances before the face of God and with God. So we settle the ownership issue that God is the owner and I'm the steward. And we settle the authority issue that all of life, all of life is to be lived under the authority and the kingship of Christ. We now come to the final issue here in this parable. And that is the accountability issue. The accountability issue. Jesus tells us in verse 15 that the master has returned. Having received the kingdom, he returns formally and officially as king. And that's when he calls the servants to himself for an accounting to see what they've done with what he had entrusted to their care. We read in verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Talk about an excellent return on investment, right? That's a thousand percent gain. He took three months' wages and turned it into 30 months' wages. But notice the humility here. It's almost as if he removes himself with, from the equation. He says, Lord, your mina has done this. He doesn't say, look at what I've done. Your mina has made 10 more. To which the king replies in verse 17, well done. Well done, good servant. 
Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Wow. The king says to the servant, because you are faithful in a little, here are ten cities that I want you to now rule over. What did that tell us? A couple of things. First, it tells us of the grace of God. Look at the grace here. You are faithful with three months' wages. Now I want to have you rule over ten cities. Talk about disproportionate grace and generosity. The second thing it tells us that the reward of faithfulness, listen, the reward of faithfulness in the kingdom is greater responsibility, not less. It's more work, not less. Now, this is totally the opposite of the world system, right? Where the higher you, be, you climb, the greater you become, the less you have to do. Not so in the kingdom. In God's kingdom, the greater you become, the higher you go, the more you get to serve the king. That's the reward. That's the blessing. The more you get to serve the king. How many of you know we're going to be working in heaven? Did you know that? We're going to be working in heaven. I, I realize I just burst some of your bubbles. Because the picture we have in, in our minds, so many people, heaven, we're just going to be floating on clouds, mindlessly strumming that stupid harp for all eternity. But that is just, that's nowhere in this book, just to let you know. That is not in the Bible. We're going to be working. And we're going to be doing a lot of things that we did here on earth. But here's the difference. In heaven work, the curse will be lifted. The curse is going to be lifted. That is, work will no longer feel like work. It's no longer going to be a burden. It is now going to be a source of absolute joy. That is why the reward of faithfulness in the kingdom of God is more work, not less. But the first servant gets ten cities to rule over, and the second servant who gained five minus is given five cities. And then we come to the third servant in verse 20. When he comes before the king, he opens a handkerchief. That reveals the mina that he had been given. That's where it was hidden the whole time the master was away. He didn't put it to use. He didn't invest it. He didn't leverage it. He just sat on it. Why? He says, because I was afraid. I was afraid of you, king. Because you're a harsh man. You take what you did not earn. You reap what you did not sow. To which the king responds, if that's how you see me, if you think I'm a harsh and selfish man, and if your assessment of my character is right, if that's true, then you should have at least put my money in the bank so that I can earn interest on it. You should have at least done that. And he orders that the miner be taken from that servant and given to the one who has ten. Now, what do we make of this servant? Who does the servant represent? Here it is. He represents all those in the church that profess faith but do not possess faith. He represents all those in the church that profess faith but do not possess faith. This servant represents all those who have an outward conformity to Christianity but have no inward transformation that comes with genuine faith. And how do we know that? We see it in his actions, or lack thereof. We see it in the lack of obedience. He was given the task of putting the money to use for the king's profit, but does nothing. Why? 
Because he doesn't really know him, that's why. In fact, he doesn't know him at all. He sees him as harsh when in reality he's good. He sees him as greedy and unjust when in fact he is generous and gracious as evidenced by the fact that he lavishly rewards his faithful servants. This is the person who does not go about the king's business because he does not know nor love the king. Bible scholar Darabach says the third servant represents people who are related to the king and that they are associated with the community and have responsibility in it. In other words, they go to church, they serve in the church. Nevertheless, their attitude shows that they do not see God as gracious and have not really trusted him. Such people are left with nothing at the judgment. They are sent out to the outer darkness because they never really knew God. And that is the fate of this third servant. And we see it in verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is what awaits those who reject his rule. Can I just remind you that this is Jesus saying this? He said, I'm going to bring them before me. I'm going to slaughter them right in my presence. Lest you think this is some random, obscure passage in the Bible, the Bible is replete with such pictures. Revelation 19 is one of them. John in Revelation 19 has given a picture, a vision of the returning Christ. And he's returning, he's coming on a white horse, and he is called faithful and true, and he judges and makes war, and he says in verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. So as Jesus is coming down, riding on a white horse, his robe is bloody. But the blood is not the blood that he shed on the cross. This is not a picture of redemption, this is a picture of judgment. The blood here is the blood of his slaughtered enemies, and we see this in verse 15. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. What a horrifying picture of what the wrath of God will be like on that day. Winepresses were part of the winemaking process where they would stomp on grapes, causing the juices to flow out. This is the picture we are given of the blood that will flow from God's enemies. The whole earth and its wickedness will be the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. When was the last time you heard about this Jesus? We love to present him today as one who is full of mercy and grace, love and compassion, and he is all those things and more. Absolutely, he is all those things and more. But that's not all he is. The Bible tells us that he is also a God of wrath. Why? Because he's a God of justice. For God to be good, for God to be just, evil must be punished. And the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that evil will not have the last word. Murder will not have the last word. Rape will not have the last word. Exploitation will not have the last word. God has the last word. 
And there is coming a day when he will punish evil and all those who do evil to the fullest extent of his wrath. Do you know why we have such a hard time comprehending the wrath of God? It's because we have a high view of man and a low view of God. We have a high view of man and a low view of God. Most people today think they're good and worthy of heaven. That's why they can't fathom how, a, how God could pour out wrath. What do you, I can't. But what would be abundantly clear on that day is just how sinful and unworthy we are and how righteous and just he is. I promise you, I promise you on that day, we are finally going to have a high view of God and a low view of man. We will see on that day just how much we have profaned his name, just how much we have dishonored his holiness, and just how just God is in punishing sin. So to those who have never surrendered to the kingship of Christ, I implore you today, be reconciled to God. Be made right. Humble yourself before God. Repent of your sins. Surrender, submit to his loving authority in your life. Listen, some of you are not serious about this and you need to get serious. Some of you need to seriously think about your life. Some of you right now are sacrificing the eternal for the temporal. Some of you right now, some of you right now are, are headed for hell and you don't even know it. The biggest problem in your life right now is not that you're not married. Or that you don't have a place to live or that you don't have a job. Your biggest problem is that someday soon you're going to face God and you're not ready. What Jesus makes clear in this parable is that an accounting is coming. It's coming. There's coming a day when you and I will stand before him, will stand before God to give an account with, of the life that we lived and what we did with what he has entrusted to our care to use for his purposes. That day is coming. As sure as I'm standing before you right now, you can be sure that that day is coming. Jesus is coming back. Hear this. Jesus is coming back. He's going to come. He's going to come quickly. We believe that it's going to be soon, real soon. And the question is, are you ready? Are you ready to stand before him? Are you ready to face God? What's interesting is that whenever Jesus speaks of his return, it's always nighttime. We don't see that here because that's not the main point of this parable. But every parable, every time he talks about his second coming, it's always nighttime. Why? Because what happens at night? You get sleepy. You start dozing off. And what Jesus is saying is that the time in which we live is dark. And it's a time that makes it easy for people to go to sleep. And according to the Bible, to be sleeping spiritually, to be spiritually asleep, 
means that we have allowed the dreams and the fantasies of this present world to affect us more than the realities of God's kingdom. And that's what the night does. It lulls us into a false reality that this is all there is. This world is all there is. And that's why you got Christians saying YOLO. That's one of my biggest pet peeves. Can, it, can, can we just not, as believers, say YOLO? You don't, you don't only live once. You know what it is? Yes. Y-A-L-F. You actually live forever. <laughs> but the nighttime, it lulls us into a false reality. And it lulls us into complacency. That I'm good. I got time. He ain't coming back. And this is why Paul is constantly telling us, wake up. Wake up. He said in Romans 13, 11, wake up. Wake up. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Ephesians 5, 14. He says, awake. Awake. You who are asleep and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully how then you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. In other words, don't let the darkness of this present world put you to sleep on what really matters in this life. And men and women, what really matters, what ultimately matters is one thing. What we did with Christ and all that he has given us, all that he has entrusted to our care, to steward and to manage for his purposes, including this, including this. This is the temple of the 21st century. This is the God that people today worship. And everywhere in our society, everywhere we turn, we are told that this is the pathway to life and happiness, security and peace. But God's word tells us that's a lie. It says you will never truly know life until you learn to give it away. And you can give it away because you have found your life and happiness, peace and security in him. And oh, by the way, you're not taking any of this with you when your time on this earth is done. You can't take any of this with you. Now, in between this day right now and that day when you breathe your last on earth, you've been given a choice. God gave you that choice. He gave you the choice to spend it in various ways. And my hope and my prayer for you, for us, is that we would spend it wisely. That we would spend it with eternity in mind. That we would spend it, that we would spend this with the King and His purpose. C.T. Studd was a British missionary, and he wrote this poem. 
two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way. Bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day the Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then hell be Lord with joy to say, only one life to soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I'll know, I'll say it was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. God, burn that, sear that on my heart and mind. And on our heart and mind as a people of God. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. God, please. God, form our hearts and minds. Jesus, help us to live for that day. Help us to live for that day. When you return in your glory. We are all called before you. And we will have to give an account of what we did with the life you have entrusted to us and all that you have given us in grace. And God, I pray that we here at Living Way would be found faithful. Oh, God, please. God, please. Help us to live and to spend our days and our finances and all that you have given us, God, that we would spend it in such a way that when we stand before you, we will hear the words coming out of your mouth, well done. Oh, well done, my good servant. God, please. God, will you work that into our hearts and our minds? And God, please keep us from forgetting this. 
because the moment we leave, the moment we walk out of this room, God, we know what we're up against. We know that we're going to be bombarded with the opposite message. God, please, let your word be planted deep in every heart and mind. And God, please, give us the grace to live for that day. Knowing Jesus, you're going to be coming soon. God, help us to know that we don't have a lot of time left. That we don't have much time left. Soon and very soon, the king is coming back. So God, please, give us the grace to live for that day. And Lord, I pray for all those who are listening right now. Everyone within the sound of my voice. Every person that has not bowed their knee to the kingship of Christ. God, Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction. And God, give them the grace. I pray, God, that your kindness, your kindness, your kindness, your love and your acceptance, your forgiveness and grace. God, I pray that your kindness would bring them to repentance. That they would bow their knee, that they would bend their knee to you and surrender to your loving authority in their lives. God, would you bring, would you bring people to you right now? God, draw, Father, draw people to your Son. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see that everything we've wanted is in you. Not in our money or anything this world tells us. Jesus, you really have the keys to eternal life. To whom will we turn? Where else will we go? Jesus, you have it. Thank you. Thank you for the grace you have poured out upon us. God, give us now the grace to steward it well. For our joy, the good of the world that is in desperate need, and the glory of your holy name. Amen. Maybe the Lord.